Welcome back to Essential Ethics and our series of recordings from the 2022 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference, hosted by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. I am Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. The theme of the conference in 2022 was Dialogue Across Difference. This conference session was a plenary lecture delivered by Professor Jody Halpin, Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities from the University of California, Berkeley, in the United States. The plenary lecture was titled Addressing Conflict, an Introduction to Empathic Curiosity. In this podcast, Professor Halpin introduces the audience to empathic curiosity, a concept that she has developed through her work in psychiatry, paediatrics and clinical ethics. Professor Halpern explains how sympathy may become naturally to many clinicians, but is often an unhelpful response to difficulties that patients and parents of sick children face. What is needed is an empathic response that engages the patient or parent and supports the medical decisions that need to be made. Professor Halpern offers a series of steps to operationalise empathic curiosity and builds a therapeutic alliance even if there has been disagreement? Well, first of all, I would define clinical empathy as the capacity to imagine how the patient is thinking and feeling about her situation, the medically relevant situation. And more broadly, psychologists and researchers agree that the capacity to do that involves two different brain functions. One function is cognitive perspective-taking, And I would add that that is guided by curiosity. It's trying to find out more about how another person sees the world. And you don't know that. So that's guided by the motivation of curiosity. And the second component of empathy, which involves a different part of the brain that involves emotionally resonating with what another person is feeling. That's one way to define empathy. But another very important way is to ask patients when they perceive their doctor to be empathic. And we have, since 2006, a measure developed by Stuart Mercer called the CARE measure, which is very um, reliable and valid for measuring patients' perception that their doctor was empathic. And here are some of the main items from that CARE measure. The patient is asked, how was the doctor at, one, making you feel at ease, two, letting you tell your story, three, really listening, four, being interested in you as a whole person, and five, fully understanding your concerns, and six, showing care and compassion. Why is this so important for effective medical care? Well, if you think of the three most important parts of effective medical care, it's making a correct diagnosis, which involves history taking. It's being able to effectively engage in treatments with the patient And three, helping people deal with bad news and organize themselves when they have to deal with difficult situations and make medical decisions. So first of all, diagnosis and history taking. We have, I'm giving you some of the oldest articles that first proved these points, but there's been proof over and over again since then and replicated. Empathy is crucial for history taking. This is based on research where a whole primary care clinic was wired up for a year. And this was now repeated around the world where there's um, videotaping of patient interviews and where 
people then analyze what leads people to disclose important information based on the doctor's interviewing style. And what is seen over and over is that patients don't just come in and tell the doctor what they're most worried about, especially if it's stigmatized or some, it could be something like drinking too much, but it could also be something like a lump coming back. Um, patients give the hints. And even if the doctor asks good questions, but is emotionally neutral and not uh, attuned to the patient, patients often don't reveal the information. But if there's nonverbal attunement, if there's a kind of emotional resonance and attunement between clinician and patient, very much like the nonverbal attunement that we see on videotapes of infants with their mothers, then the patient is much more likely to give the information. The second very important part of medical care is helping patients participate in treatment in a way where the treatment can be effective. And that a big area of medical care that's problematic is, is adherence to treatment. About half of all prescriptions that are given to patients, even who have insurance and are able to afford the medication, are not prescribed as recommended. Either the patient really didn't think the doctor was right and never fills the prescription or fills it, tries it for a day or so, has some side effect and stops and doesn't tell the doctor. And it turns out the biggest predictor of adherence to treatment, telling the doctor if there are side effects, filling the prescription, keeping up with it, is trust. And the biggest predictor of trust is empathy. So empathy is the most uh, important predictor of trust. And the way we know that is from various surveys where they looked at um, patient perceptions of doctors and adherence to treatment. And things like friendliness do not predict adherence to treatment. If the doctor is friendly, but it's the sense that the doctor is genuinely worried along with you, following you emotionally and taking you seriously that correlates with the care measure of empathy. A third very important part of effective medical care is giving bad news and helping people organize themselves if they have to decide about cancer treatment or other difficult decisions. And we have very good um, videotaped interviews. This goes way back, but we've seen this repeated in more recent work that if a doctor conveys a difficult diagnosis to a patient and family with empathy that decreases the patient's anxiety and the family's anxiety. And we see that patients are more able to cope with the information and seek treatment, support groups, et cetera, more quickly after the consultation where they heard about their diagnosis. So it's improved patient activation, decision-making and seeking support. Still, with all these wonderful ways that empathy makes care more effective, we see a relatively low prevalence of people doing well on the care measure in, in medical practice. As I mentioned, Stuart Mercer developed the care measure in 2005. That's the reference here. Um, but since then, there's been a lot of research using the care measure, including by uh, this group from the UK, Jeremy Howick's group. And over and over, physician empathy, physician, not nurses, who do better, Physician empathy is seen to be low overall and highly var variable. Nurses and allied health professionals uh, rate higher, but it can still be very uneven. So why? My hypothesis is because doctors have sympathy for their patients, but not are not trained to have specific skills, which I'll go over today for clinical empathy, to take that sympathy and transform it into curious clinical empathy. When I say sympathy, I bring this up because some people think that doctors lack empathy because they're just detached and don't care about patients. But some of the research we've done, which I'll mention, shows that it can often be a doctor who cares a lot about patients, feels a lot of sympathy, but hasn't been trained in the skills to use that clinically in an effective way, 
who then feels distress, sympathetic distress, which I'll get to, and burnout, and then is detached. But the cause is not lack of caring for patients in the first place. The definition of sympathy that I'm using here is emotionally resonating with someone um, with their most prominent emotions. So if a patient's very afraid or very sad or very angry, the clinician will be resonating with that, but they don't then use this in the service of curiosity or to learn more about the complexity of the patient. They rather act as an advocate of the emotion. They say they feel the patient's fear or sadness and become sort of in the same boat with the patient about that fear or sadness and react from that position. So, you know, if you think of a friend telling you that their boss is terrible and they need to quit their job, sympathy would be saying, you're right, your boss is terrible, you do need to quit your job. But of course, that's not always helpful for a friend even, but definitely if a clinician is to do that, it would be very problematic. And I say that as a psychiatrist, because a very common part of psychiatry is meeting with people who are depressed and potentially having suicidal feelings. And they'll say, they'll try to convince you that their life is hopeless and they have nothing to live for. So pure sympathy would be to resonate with them and say, you're right, your life is hopeless. You have nothing to live for. And that would obviously not be a very helpful reaction. So psychiatrists have to learn to become curious about why, why now? Why are you feeling like you can't go on with your life right now? I, I hear that it feels hopeless. I hear that it feels terrible, but did something else happen? Is there more complexity here? So empathy, clinical empathy, or I would say empathic curiosity does involve resonance, but involves this more mobile emotional resonance, trying to see if the patient can shift emotionally and non-verbally attuning to shifts in case they get a little bit different emotionally. And it's guided by curiosity to learn more about what they're feeling so that you can find potentially a therapeutic hook. So my claim is that from our research is that if you don't have that skill to take your emotional resonance with the patient and shift it into curiosity to learn more, you are liable to have sympathetic distress. And further, if you're feeling sympathetic distress, that means you're feeling anxious and, and sympathetic with their feelings, but a lot of self-related anxiety about it. That makes it very hard or almost impossible to become empathically curious. So we have research going way back showing that medical students who become more personally distressed in response to patients' distress have steeper declines in cognitive empathy during training. They lose the curiosity they come to medical school with. And then we have research that I'm a part of with Jean Decidi and a group at University of Chicago, where we, we basically showed that when people can distinguish their resonance from, for another's suffering, when medical students can learn that from their own self-related anxiety and regulate themselves, this can help them develop curiosity about the patient. And the curiosity itself, listening to the patient's story, and I'll say more about this later, can decenter them from their self-related anxiety. So it can create a virtuous cycle. Becoming curious about the patient and not presuming that you're anxious, sympathetic, um, distress is just everything there is to the situation and trying to figure out more about why the patient's in this situation right now, that curiosity can help you feel less anxious as they tell you more about their story. Previous studies saw the emotional kind of empathy, the affective resonance, and which is also part of sympathy, and the cognitive seeing something from another's perspective through curiosity as in various parts of the brain that are in green, 
But what we now know is that they're actually in the yellow parts of the yet uh, where the yellow dots are. And now that we know that they're not exactly where we thought they were, we see a lot more um, networks connecting them and now can show. And this is the work of Jamil Zaki, that they work in, in, in together in cycles, that when we're trying to cognitively understand someone that can help us resonate. And when we're resonating with someone, we can use that to become more curious about them. So it's not an impossible task at all. We have the pathways to do it. What we also know is that people who can have skills of empathic curiosity are less likely to burn out and more likely to feel satisfaction with their role in medicine. And this is true for nurses, um, allied health professionals, and physicians. I always ask the audience at this point, which medical specialty do you think has the lowest burnout? And I know you can't answer me out loud, but you can think about it for a minute. The lowest burnout is seen in oncologists and hospice clinicians. And that's, of course, people who deal with some of the saddest parts of medicine, people who are dying, people who are in pain. Palliative care is in this also. But these are team doctors who who have to be trained in um, these, what they call it exquisite empathy in this study from JAMA, but they're really the specific kind of skillful shifting into empathic curiosity I'm talking about. So even if you're dealing with very sad parts of healthcare, if you can develop the, these skills of shifting your emotional resonance into empathic curiosity, you're, li you're likely to enjoy your job more and have less burnout and distress. Now we get to the topic of empathy and conflict resolution, which is uh, my main topic in this talk today, um, which is all of this sounds well and good, but what happens when you're part of a team where in pediatrics, where a family member is blocking the team from doing something that is very important to help a child or some other situation that makes for a conflict between the clinician and a patient or family member, and you're feeling very angry. It can be very hard to have empathic curiosity when you're angry. This is something I've studied and we write about um, just how difficult it is, but I will try to show you some steps today that can help you do that. The tendency for people when they are angry, for clinicians, when they're angry at a patient or family, is to try to just suppress their anger and behave in a polite and neutral way. But it turns out during a conflict, that doesn't help resolve the conflict. Whereas empathic curiosity is a powerful core tool for conflict resolution. Outside of medicine, people whose jobs are in diplomatic or other uh, political or policing conflict resolution one of the main skills is empathic curiosity. So there's really no way to just suppress the anger and have conflict resolution. You have to kind of figure out what to do to get yourself back to a genuine position of empathic curiosity, which is what I'll help you see today, I hope. So let's get into it. Conflict blocks empathic curiosity. I don't even have to show you. There's data on this, but you could just imagine if you're having, if you have a teenage child and they are... Um, in a big conflict with you over their safety or their health, you lose your curiosity about why they feel the way they do. You just want to keep them from doing the terrible thing. So um, if conflict makes it very hard to have empathic curiosity, and I'd like to show you though, that it's still possible with certain clinical steps. And um, to do that, I'd like to talk to you now about a case. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen. So this is a case that um is an aggregate case. It's not a real um, single individual. It's a number of different um, individuals. And I thank the, the um, 
the Melbourne Royal Children's Hospital for writing most of it. I also add a f- added some of the dialogue from real cases I've been involved in. And we'll talk about it more uh, tomorrow as well. Samuel's story. I'm just going to read from our shared materials. Ivan is a physiotherapist working at the base hospital 2.5 hours from Melbourne. Ivan specializes in pediatric rehabilitation and has spent three years working at RCH in the physiotherapy and rehabilitation departments. Ivan has just received a referral from RCH neurology department for a seven-year-old boy, Samuel, recently diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Samuel has been in Australia for one year. He migrated here with his 13-year-old sister and parents from Africa. Samuel was only recently seen at RCH and the diagnosis of DMD, which will be my initials for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, is new. Samuel's teacher has also been in contact with Ivan because she was concerned that Samuel was falling over a lot in the playground. When Ivan rings Samuel's parents to introduce himself and arrange an appointment with Samuel, Samuel's mother sounds very nervous and worried and doesn't want to meet with Ivan, and she asks him not to mention the term DMD. She says they don't use that term, and Samuel doesn't know about the diagnosis. Samuel's father is seeking more opinions online and with friends who know clinicians where he used to live in Africa. He does not believe the neurologist at RCH, which is the Royal Children's Hospital of Melbourne. Ivan eventually obtains permission from Samuel's mother to assess Samuel at school as long as he doesn't mention DMD to Samuel or the teacher. When he visits the school, Ivan finds that Samuel is still ambulatory, although he often falls and has cuts and bruises on his leg. It's hard for Samuel to get up from the floor if the class is sitting on the floor for activities. Samuel increasingly avoids going outside at lunchtime with the other children. He often misses part of his favorite periods at school, art and library, because the school campus is large and it takes him too long to walk to these specialist classrooms. Ivan believes it would be much safer for Samuel to be in a wheelchair, to avoid falling and minimize the risk of a fracture. Ivan also thinks this would allow Samuel to participate more at school. Ivan is worried that Samuel doesn't know the reasons for falling and he's becoming more and more withdrawn and anxious because of this. Ivan is eventually able to get Samuel's father, Amari, to agree for him to come and meet with Amari and Samuel's mother. But they prefer to come to Ivan because they don't want Samuel or the family to know about the meeting. Ivan begins by asking them what they understand about the situation, pausing to give them a chance to think about it. Amari tells Ivan that he does not believe that his son has DMD. Amari believes that Samuel is just clumsy and a bit lazy. If Samuel tried harder, he would be able to keep up. Amari is adamant that all Samuel needs is some exercises from the physiotherapist and that he should be treated just like other children. He explains that in his culture, it is very important that boys must be strong and he needs to be trained out of this. What might Ivan say or do next? Well, let me give you five steps that I would uh, recommend for Ivan and show what happens when he follows them. First of all, finding empathic curiosity during a conflict begins with oneself. The first thing Ivan needs to do, step one, is to take his own emotional temperature. He needs to recognize that this is a situation that is making him very anxious. Because Amari is expressing views that are so strong and dominant and bad for Samuel, Ivan is very aware that he might be potentially heading not only into a conflict, but to one that requires him to contact Child Protective Services, which is something Ivan hates to get involved with. 
So he's really getting very, very anxious about this case. And he needs to see how anxious he's getting. One crucial thing is anxiety narrows down what, what clinical or other possibilities a clinician sees, often jumping to the worst case scenario. So the more anxious Ivan is, the more likely he thinks that there's no way he can deal with Amari and that we're going to a disaster here. So seeing that he's anxious in his body is very important. The second related step to this, seeing his anxiety, is to take steps to decrease his anxiety. And this is something that's been studied with nurses and doctors. And in both cases, it can be something very brief. There's studies showing that just counting to 10, taking some deep breaths, sitting back in one's seat, recognizing tight areas of one's body, and clenching a muscle and releasing it, all of this can help anxiety decrease significantly. And this is something that's now being taught in both nursing schools and some medical schools. There's more in-depth mindfulness training being taught too, but these quick techniques can then allow doctors, especially if they've also had mindfulness training, and nurses to then quickly take steps to be aware of their own anxiety and decrease it. And there's really good research showing that taking just a few minutes, even just becoming aware that you're anxious and taking a breath or two reduces medical errors, improves decision-making capacity, and resolves conflict. So that's step one, is becoming aware of anxiety in one's body and taking steps to decrease it. Step two is that anxiety is not the only emotion Ivan is feeling. And during a conflict, very often what the clinician is feeling is anger. And Ivan, too, in this case, is very, very angry at Amari. He's angry because of Amari saying that Dan, that, that Samuel is lazy, because Amari is putting pressure on Samuel to keep up and he can't. He's hurting Samuel's physical health and his mental health and delaying treatment still. And this, of course, would make anybody who cares about the child very, very angry. And at this point, Samuel realizes he's really enraged. But realizing that he's enraged is very important. We are taught as clinicians not that we should not have negative feelings towards our patients or the families, but we do. And we do because we care about patients. Sometimes you can be mad about the patient, an adult patient, him or herself, who's doing something destructive, like going back to alcoholism. But we can certainly be mad when a parent like this keeps a child from necessary care. We would not be caring doctors if we didn't get angry at these times. But we must be curious about our own anger. Curious about our own anger. Because... There's good research showing that when we're angry, if we become curious about it, it shifts. It shifts to whatever is underneath the anger very, very quickly, just with some curiosity. And in this case, it only takes Ivan a minute or two to realize that the reason he's so mad at Amari is clearly because he's really afraid that he will not have the tools to help Samuel. He feels afraid and helpless that he will not be able to help this seven-year-old boy. And taking a breath as he realizes that he's not only anxious and reduce that, but angry, but really the anger is really because he's really afraid, decreases him from a state of being enraged with Amari, because enraged states are states that really make one more helpless, actually, and cause one just to react out of rage and not be strategic. And now that he realizes really what he's just trying to do is figure out how to help Samuel, it doesn't matter you know, why Amari's doing what he's doing in that sense, it matters for him to understand Amari to try to help Samuel. 
he also realizes, Ivan consults with somebody who knows more about DMD, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, to find out how much time they have before it's really urgent that Samuel have a wheelchair and steroids and the treatments he needs and realizes he has at least days because it's been too delayed already. But he also realizes that he is going to make sure Samuel gets treatment because he's going to refer the family to protective services if he has to. So he stops feeling as helpless with that thought, all of which can happen in a minute. And he realizes it's still, that's a big, bad option because protective services can mess things up. It doesn't always help. So it just helps him come back to the present and realize what he really wants to do is see if he can change Amari's thinking. And that he's now still angry. He's not happy with Amari, but he's no longer enraged because he has options and he doesn't feel so helpless, trapped, and afraid. This is Ivan. So what Ivan has realized, what I've just gone over, is what he essentially did is realize that he was in sympathetic distress because Amari is so upset. And we'll talk more about what's under Amari's feelings, that that Ivan was resonating with Amari and became so upset and in a state of sympathetic distress. But what he's now done is help shift this towards empathic curiosity. So he now speaks, he's ready to speak to Amari from a position of being curious about what Amari is blocked by, essentially. So he has genuine curiosity for the first time now about what Amari's reasons and thinking and feelings are, really about Amari's feelings that are blocking him. And again, his curiosity is not motivated by positive feelings about Amari. It's motivated about wanting to help Samuel. So when Ivan now approaches Amari with this curiosity, the first thing that comes into his head is why would this father, who does appear to love his son and reports being educated about health, why would he put his son through all this and jeopardize his health? And as soon as Ivan asks himself this question, he's taking a third step towards constructive empathic curiosity which is recognizing that we're all emotionally complex and we shouldn't take just one emotion, however strong, to be the only thing another person is feeling. And this again harks back to the distinction between sympathy and empathy. And the example I gave you about being a psychiatrist and if a patient says, my life isn't worth living, I still have to be curious about, is there any part of them that feels it's worth living? Why are they so sure right now? And in the same way, Ivan has to be curious, why is Amari shutting down all medical treatment that Samuel desperately needs when he cares about his son and he's educated? Why is he not understanding this? Have they not communicated clearly? What's going on? And so to stimulate a a process of change, he wants to find out more from Ivan himself about this because now he's genuinely curious. So what he does, he wants to ask Amari Tell me why you're so sure that we shouldn't treat Samuel. But the issue here, and this is my step number three, is that in finding out when shifting to empathic curiosity, you're ready to question the person that you've been angry about. Asking them why they feel the way they do as a question that way can make people more defensive. People don't want to be asked, why do you feel the way you do? That makes people defensive. But he wants to find out. So what do you do? What you can do that's very powerful is you can repeat the person's own words back to them and then be quiet, which is a way of asking a question that's very non-threatening. So Ivan repeats to Amari the very important words that have to do with his barrier to treating Samuel. He says to Amari, in your country, it's very important that boys must be strong because those are the words that really Amari said about how he feels. 
And then he's quiet, the clinician. And Amari nods. He feels heard and he talks more. And he tells Ivan what Ivan wants to know. He talks about, Amari talks about in his country, seeing children with disabilities who've been living terrible lives. They, they don't get medical care and they're ostracized. And as he tells Ivan about that, Ivan basically starts to feel genuine empathic resonance for the first time with Amari, realizing that Amari is just terrified that Samuel will be doomed to a terrible life. He sees this diagnosis as leading to the ostracism of Sam. So now we've made, this is a real turning point. And this is the point where now Ivan does begin to understand Amari. He resonates with him and he's curious, but now he feels this tremendous emotional resonance with how scared Amari must be. And this is a critical point. Most clinicians, especially because of what they perceive as time pressure, although none of this, as I'll tell you later, takes actually that much time once you get used to doing it. Ivan now wants to say to Amari, well, yes, you don't want him to be ostracized and we know what to do. We can get him the wheelchair and the treatment and we will make sure this country is different. We have treatment. Kids are not ostracized. He wants to basically do what? He wants to join in sympathetically with Amari. He resonates with Amari's worries about Samuel. And Ivan has his own worries about Samuel. And he wants to act from those worries as a kind of advocate. But it's premature to do that because we don't know how defensive that might suddenly make Amari. So it's extremely important at this point, even as Ivan is resonating with Amari, for him to continue following empathic curiosity. He doesn't do that. In this case, his sympathy with Amari's fear leads him to explain to Amari that in Melbourne, Samuel can get good services, social acceptance of disability is much better, and how a wheelchair can help him become more included in school, not less so. But he does it very quickly rather than trying to find out more about Amari. And as he does this, Amari gets very defensive again and very angry again and says... Why should I believe anything you are telling me? You are recommending steroids, but my uncle in my home country has told me not to put Samuel on steroids. And then an, another doctor advised that there, and he told me not to do it. This is just a job for you doctors. You don't know what it's like being the parent. So this is another critical moment. Ivan wanted to present all the clinical evidence to Amari and convince him, but he acted too quickly and Amari became defensive again. Here, Ivan realizes, he corrects himself, that Amari's accusatory's tone is a very important one here. Amari is now getting angry at Ivan and accusing him of not caring. And this is a critical invitation for Ivan to stick with empathy and empathic curiosity and not become too defensive. Ivan knows that, and this is my step five, that if he were to allow Amari to express anger towards him and to accept that there was something for Amari to be angry about, that can tremendously develop a therapeutic alliance. So let me say what I mean. Ivan says now to Amari, well, Amari says that you doctors, you don't care. You all tell me different things. Ivan then says, it's really hard when different doctors tell you different things and it's not their child at stake. Who do you believe? And he's quiet. And this softens Amari very much, who then reveals to Ivan, when I was 15, my father died because a doctor did the wrong thing. And Amari takes a breath 
And now it's really apparent that it's fear and feelings of helplessness that Amari is caught up in. And that his, his anger is because he feels those feelings. So this is another inflection point. By accepting Amari's anger non-defensively, Ivan's created a shift in Amari. Amari's anger is lessening now. It's more fear that's coming to the surface. And again, this moves Ivan in this time to feel empathy for the 15-year-old Amari who had lost his dad. And Ivan says, and you were just a kid. You couldn't do anything to help him. Which is a very interesting thing to say, because that also implies you can do something now for Samuel. So it's kind of a question again, but it's very gentle. And Amari gets quiet and sad, and the two connect. And this is the beginning of a therapeutic alliance. And again, now Ivan really wants to say, look, we're on the same page here. We both want to help Samuel. Let's just get him a wheelchair and the steroids. But again, now Ivan has learned he has to go very slow with Amari. So he does want to get going to some positive steps for Samuel, but he doesn't want to say, here's what we should be doing, because he still thinks that Amari may react by being lectured at. So Ivan instead tries to partner with him and says, I know you want to help Samuel. Where do we go from here? I'm going to stop the case here, but I want to now summarize all the steps that I just illustrated for you. These are steps when you're feeling sympathetic distress and you're in a conflict with a patient or family. These are the steps that Ivan took that can help you go from sympathetic distress to empathic curiosity and a therapeutic alliance. First, take your own emotional temperature. You have to figure out right away when you're getting really anxious and you have to be very much on top of that because anxiety constricts thinking for the doctors and nurses as well as patients. And if you're acting from anxiety, you lose the ability to think about options completely. And this happens often because we care about the patient. So it's very, very important for Ivan to become aware of just how anxious he's getting and to take those breaths, to feel his body, to sit, you know, feel himself sitting, you know, a, a common way to say it in, in, um, Meditation is feel your sit bones in the chair, feel your feet on the ground, for him to ground himself and take some breaths and decrease his physical anxiety. Two, as soon as you start to take some breaths, you might become aware of how you're actually feeling, and that might be a lot of anger toward the patient or family. And instead of trying to push that away because you think it's unprofessional, welcome awareness of it. Caring doctors have to get angry at times. I was furious at Amari when I read about how he was treating Samuel and I'm not even involved. It's normal and expectable that when people do things, especially a family not helping a child, that we will feel angry if we care. So welcome awareness if you're becoming really angry. However, try to do something by becoming aware. And one of the things that's really interesting is there's a lot of research now showing that when we feel good about somebody we are less curious to learn more about the situation, but when we're angry about them, we actually are naturally curious. We, you know, if you think about it, you want to know like, why would someone do something like that? So try to go use your anger to get curious. And in this case, to think about it more broadly. And that's what leads Ivan to think, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. Amari does care about his son. There's evidence of that. And he knows enough to know that this is something that Samuel really can't just do without. Why is he being so obstructive? Third, it's time for Ivan. He's calmed his anxiety. He's aware of his anger. He's become curious about 
why Amari feels the way he does, but he wants to ask him. But this is really critical. It's not great to just ask people during a conflict about how they feel or why they feel the way they feel. They don't really want you to play psychiatrist and ask them a lot of questions. That makes people very defensive. Rather, and actually more effectively, just pick some of the words they've used that seem to express their feelings and just repeat their exact words and be quiet so they'll know you've listened. And in this case, that's what Ivan does. He repeats the word in, in your country. Is, it's very important. These are all Amari's words that boys must be strong. And this does lead. This is a question, essentially, but it's asked by just repeating words and being quiet. And this leads Amari to tell him much more. And then Amari tells the stories about seeing kids ostracized. And then that helps Ivan recover empathy. I just want to say something about letting a patient tell you a story. First of all, how much time do you think it takes to let a patient at the beginning of a clinic visit, just to ask them an open-ended thing about why are you here today? What do you hope to get out of being here today? And let you tell their story. Doctors used to be terrified that that would take an incredibly long amount of time, but it turns out it only takes between 45 to 90 seconds for people to tell a whole important story and then rate the doctor as much more empathic and have better therapeutic alliance. So it's very, it can be very effective. But secondly, what I think is so interesting is that when the pa- while the patient is telling you about them, that helps you empathize with them. It helps you understand them. And it decreases your anxiety. What do I mean by that? Well, think about at the end of a clinic day, when you go home in the evening, how do you relax at the end of the day? One way that people relax, you might have dinner with family, you might have a glass of wine, but a, a very common way that people relax is by watching TV series or cable series or reading books. And they're all about people's stories. When we get involved in someone else's stories, we relax. And even hearing the story from Amari helps Ivan calm down. And then this leads to a fourth step, which is Ivan at that point too quickly went on to tell Amari what he thought they should do. And then Amari got really angry at Ivan and said, you doctors give me different, tell me different things. Who do I believe? It's not your child. You're not the parent. You don't care. And that's my fourth step is when someone gets angry at you like that, that's a golden opportunity to bond with them and shift the conversation by showing that you can accept their point of view. And that's when Ivan does a terrific job and says to Amari, you know, doctors all tell you different things. Who are you supposed to believe? You know, they're not the parent. You are the one who cares the most. Who are you supposed to believe? So he shows empathy for Amari's confusion and anger, really. And that has a huge effect on building a therapeutic alliance. When I wrote my book on empathy in healthcare and thought of all the cases I wanted to write about it, Uh, about building a therapeutic alliance through empathy and empathic curiosity, I realized so many of them happen when the patient expressed dissatisfaction, either with me or their medical care or the hospital, and express frustration, and I could empathize with it. And that's when they really began to trust me. And then the fifth step, which is the very end, is once you're building an alliance, should you then repeat all the information and advice that the patient has, in this case, Amari, has been warding off and ignoring Or what do you do to start making decisions together and moving things to a better place? And at that point, I think it's very important to treat the person you've been in conflict with more as a partner and invite them to help you 
solve the conflict rather than just presume it's solved. So he asks Amari, how, you know, we both want to help Samuel. Where do we go from here? Um, so I think it's very important. There's things that Ivan wouldn't ask Amari. He wouldn't ask Amari, what do you think the diagnosis is? Because Ivan knows it's DMD and he's not going to debate that. But he can ask him, how can we go from here to help Samuel? And so that opens up a way to work together without making Amari defensive. So in conclusion, what I have found, and I was very aware of it when I was writing my book on empathy, is cases in which there are conflicts between doctors and patients or doctors and the family of a patient, while very difficult, can actually be tremendous therapeutic opportunities if you can develop these skills because they can build even deeper trust than just exists if you were all very polite and there had never been a conflict. I've seen this over and over again. It does not take that much time. First of all, when there is a conflict and you don't take these steps, there's so many time-consuming things that can happen. You can have to transfer a patient. You can have a legal process to happen or a big consultation take place that takes a lot of time. There's so many things that go wrong when a conflict isn't resolved. So taking these brief moments to take a breath and sense your anxiety, be aware of your anger, but be curious about what's underneath it, feelings of helplessness that you don't have to be helpless, you have clinical options, being able to ask the patient more about what they're feeling, but not by just peppering them with questions, being able to then react if a patient continues to be angry by empathizing with their concerns and the basis of their anger, and then finally trying to partner with them. All of these steps don't take that much time. And the research shows they save so much time that can happen when conflicts continue or grow. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jody. That's just a fantastic uh, presentation and it just resonates so much with me personally. And I think about some of the cases that I've been involved with and, and sat in you know, multidisciplinary meetings and, and can just sense the empathometer uh, really sagging and, and hitting low. And in fact, uh, it's not surprising that you come from a psychiatry background because the, the people who've dug us out of that have been our psychiatrists who've worked closely with us in our clinical ethics response group. And I think it's fantastic that your approach, I, I can now see what the uh, team have actually been, you know, well, some of the steps away that they might have been doing uh, something similar. I'm very interested, though, and particularly in the Bayou Centres, about uh, the way your book has revolutionised medical education and how you might actually teach this. And I'm also interested, you know, when we're thinking about the brain and, and where those bits are and the connections, uh, are we teaching people to fake it? Are we actually uh, creating new synapses too for that? So firstly, how do you teach it? And are you actually really changing people to become, who become then genuinely empathic? In terms of how to teach it, I, I mean, I did a summary, but those steps are what I have found helpful for students and residents to learn. But the question is, what format would make people interested in that? And there's a couple of different things. I, I tend to work with them these days before they're on the wards, before they're in the clinic, when they're the first few years of medical school. So what we do there is we can use narratives, conflicts like these kinds of cases, and create a trust, 
trusting atmosphere with between students and faculty to discuss these things by modeling that we don't always know what to do and sharing tend I tend to share and, and encourage faculty to share cases where maybe they didn't do everything right and um, the the pain of that. And that kind of modeling often, not during COVID, but but um, previously we would often do it, have the students to one of our homes in the evening and make it a really nice evening. So people all wanted to do it. Um, so that just helped them learn some of these things. I, I think the most important part of learning, though, is when you're already working with patients in the hospital and you are really stressed, students are stressed, and having team members that allow them to express that and it's basically modeling what, what we're supposed to do with the patient here is what the faculty have to do with the med students. And there is research showing that when faculty are not empathic towards medical students, they have a lot harder time sustaining their empathy for patients. So it, it has to be an, an environment where people, you know, some kind of case conference each month where everyone talks about what's something that we all feel like we messed up on and how can we learn, or maybe that's even too, you know, what are the hard cases and how can we learn from each other? But a lot of it is building a trust-based rapport. And this happens often in nursing. I've had the pleasure and honor to work with some of the nursing faculty who used to use sign out rounds to do some of this work, but the workload has just increased so much in the past few years that that's kind of a barrier. But um, it's something that a lot of nurses have incorporated in their work to begin with. Um, so anyway, I see other questions coming up, so I'll stop. Uh, that's fantastic, uh, Jody. And I think that idea of sort of opening yourself up to explore your own you know, limitations and where you've gone, well, it takes a lot of courage. And I think that's something we learned from our first director of the Children's Bioethics Centre about, you know, one of the key things in ethics is uh, is courage. But we have a couple of uh, panel members online, uh, Jody, uh, both of whom, um, well, we were able to get them online because they weren't burnt out because they both come from, <laughs> on, well, come from oncology and palliative care. So I'd be very interested to see from uh, perhaps Katie first and Bronwyn about just, you know, how, you know, maybe how you found yourself where you are and how you've learned or trained in empathic curiosity, or do you feel you have empathic curiosity? Katie? Well, I like to think so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I think um, I'm going to dodge your question, actually, John, because I have another burning question in my own mind, which is about... Um, conflict, particularly in pediatrics, is not just between individuals, it's usually between groups. So, you know, pediatricians are dealing usually with families as a total, and families are, particularly in hospital medicine, they're often dealing with teams or multiple teams and maybe wider health systems as well in the community, disability services and so on. And I think we've all seen group dynamics where conflict can kind of escalate and evolve over time and families can be perhaps labelled as difficult families and it kind of snowballs. And what I was wondering when I was listening to you is if one individual in that team, in the medical healthcare team, uses empathic curiosity, is it catching? Like, does it... Um, counteract the kind of the negative snowball of blame or um, resentment in conflict. So I was really thinking about those group dynamics. And I also, a second question, if I can, is um, 
I think blame is almost the opposite of empathic curiosity. You know, it's the opposite is not necessarily neutrality, but but sort of blame. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how to um, recognize and counteract blame in these sorts of situations. Thank you for great questions, Katie. First of all, yes, I mean, the, the systems level issues and how much that can become really complicated is very important. As a psychiatrist, as a consultant in the hospital, called in by the surgery team or the internal medicine team or whatever, we're often dealing with already an escalation or between teams, dynamics. And I do feel that empathic curiosity can be contagious. But an example of that was there was a, a young man who had gone, he was like 20, and his mom was on, was sadly dying of cancer, and it was sort of very end stage. She was cachectic, you know, very thin, very much toward the very end of her life. And he had uh, carried her out of a couple of hospitals that wanted to give her more pain medicine because he couldn't bear losing contact with her. And he threatened the nurses who tried to go into her room to give her the pain medication she needed. And he threatened them that he would shoot them if they if they went into the room and gave her more pain medication. So that really got everybody. I mean, we had psychiatry, we had oncology, we had the, and and um, it took first of all realizing we called his dad who was staying home, the, the father of the child and the husband of the woman, because his son was so out of control. He was not there that day. He was at home trying to sort of calm himself. But the dad, you know, gave us the information that there was no way this guy had a gun. He had no history of violence. And we had, you know, the guards in the hospital check that out and, you know, make sure he didn't have a gun or anything that could endanger anyone. But um, what people just weren't curious about him at all. They were so angry. And so our intervention with them was to meet with people and um, find out what they knew about his story and meet with him and then get that information back and forth. It's a long story, but he had gone to college. He was on the West Coast where I am and had gone to college on the East Coast this year and had really hardly seen his mother and felt terrible about that. He knew she had cancer, breast cancer, and that was um, advancing, but he had no idea she would become so ill so soon. And once we told the team more about the stories, they did become more curious about what it was like for him. And they did basically resonate thinking about their adult children and losing them or their own parents. And, I, you know, it was a whole process, but it required, first of all, um, understanding that things, it's sort of calming down the, the, the emergency situation, which is the same thing I described in this case, that even though the treatment for Samuel's DMD had to happen soon, it didn't have to happen this day. And by calming the anxiety down, there was at least some time to figure things out. And in this case that I'm telling you about, they had to calm down the, the idea that there was a risk of, of getting shot and make sure people realized that this was just a young man who was losing it. He hadn't slept for days and was so distressed, but it helped the whole process. And I do often find between teams that modeling these steps in front of other teams and other folks does become sort of contagious. And I just want to say a last thing. Um, the blame thing is a lot of what I talked about today, because I talked about when the step four, when, when um, Amari got really angry at Ivan and said, you guys always tell us something different. You're not even the parent. He was blaming him. And the article that I wrote related to some things like that, not in this case, I don't even talk about it as the, the patient or family member being angry. I actually talk about learning to accept blame for your profession. And so that's what Ivan did. He said, you're right. Like we doctors tell you different things. 
and we're not the parent. Like that is really hard. So he was not defensive about being blamed. And that helps an awful lot. Uh, I think sometimes if you can't find common ground on the actual um, decision, you can find common ground on the intention, which is to care for the child or, you know, um, be a good parent or that sort of thing. And that would be very unusual, wouldn't it, Katie, in, in paediatrics, not to be able to share at least that very basic and broad sort of goal mm. and then work from yeah. there. Bronwyn, you got some response to Jodie, your questions? Thanks, Jodie. That was a really fantastic talk. You really articulated things that I think we, certainly in palliative care and, and oncology, do every day without thinking, but how do you you come to it with an aptitude or, or an affinity for that sort of work. How do you train that into someone? And can you train it into someone? Because I think there's a huge amount of just who you are intrinsically as a person that shapes that capacity to respond. So I guess that's a question that, that John asked and that I still grapple with. But the other thing I was thinking about with Katie's question about group dynamics is in paediatrics, I think the challenges we sh- we develop and encourage empathic curiosity for the parents, but also for the children. And I think importantly, if we can show that same approach to our colleagues, it really makes for the for the best outcomes because our colleagues too bring that real sense of anger, anxiety, um, frustration, personal failure. And I think that's probably a piece that um, isn't as in the foreground in this work and, and it makes a big difference. So I wonder how you relate that to the work with colleagues. Well, I love I love that point. And I think that um, that's the place that we've had some insight from my own work, but there's a lot of different um, research out there from other people looking at the importance of at least treating colleagues with respect for, for dealing with conflict. For empathic curiosity, I mean, there's not necessarily as much research on that as I think we should have. We basically have seen during the COVID crisis, you know, tremendous burnout in nurses, physicians and allied health professionals and, and, and yeah, everybody. And so I think that the need for empathy for oneself has really been driven home. And so I think this might be a more opportune time to give people steps like these sorts of steps for, for self-care along the way as well. Um, I just want to comment, though, I, I do hear a looming question that both John and, and, and you were asking. Well, it might have been in Katie's also, which is, you know, what if you're training a team or a resident in, in, in palliative care and they just seem to really lack empathy? What do you do? That's always what people ask me. And, um, you know, there may be some people it's, it always makes me wonder why would someone go into palliative care? I mean, there is a lot of self-selection of what fields people go into, but. One thing that is just a little thing, but I think it's helped me a lot with medical students is because, and actually it's very related to the conference and the theme of difference and culture, is that empathy is is literally communicated by very different ways by people from different cultural and family backgrounds. And what I've seen is sometimes I'll have a, a person who's culturally from a very, um, a, profe- a family background or cultural background where you don't you know express tons of emotion feel that maybe they lack empathy and I'll meet with them and I'll ask them, well, tell me the story of the patient or tell me what you know about them. And they'll tell me a lot about the person's own perspective. And I'll reassure them that they have empathy, that it doesn't always have to be. There's two pathways, the emoting 
pathway is not good enough without the curiosity. That's a big part of my talk. But the curiosity part is a really good way to start the resonance with people too. And a lot of times people didn't even realize how much they were really devoted to understanding their patients in these ways. So rather than exclude people too quickly, I try to help medical students see that there's a variety of ways of expressing empathy for patients and that patients can get it, that there's not one very highly emotive. I mean, I see this with gender and other things. There's not one way of showing it to patients. And that helps people get, as soon as people feel they're not really bad at it, they often become much more interested in, in developing more skills. Thanks, Jody. Claire, I know that you're uh, very interested in mediation. How do you see uh, this as sort of one of the pathway to, to mediation? I would be interested in Jody's answer to that, actually. I think um, from, from my understanding, there's, there's something, there is something quite different about mediation, which is more form, well, I'm going to say formulaic, which might sound a bit unfair, but it's mediation is sort of bringing hearing views. So you do hear them, but it seems not the same as being empathically curious, or maybe it is. I, I think I'll let Jody answer that one, not yeah. me. <laughs> well, of course, I would love to have a long conversation with Claire because you do know so much about it, Claire. Uh -huh. So that's, I would love to hear more from you. And I don't want to take a lot of time now, but um, yeah, I think that the I'd have to know more about the different, I'm not a specialist in mediation, um, but I do think that conflict resolution is something I've studied and in conflict resolution, like if there's, you know, uh, a, a political, like we wrote a paper about human rights issues with people in the countries of the former Yugoslavia or in Rwanda, a very serious conflict resolution, things that we were involved in. It is empathic curiosity that makes a difference. And a lot of the courses in conflict resolution for people that go and do these high level mediation, well, I'm saying the wrong word, these high level conflict resolution, like even with like, you know, somebody who has to help diffuse a very angry person who's trapped people in a room and is threatening a bomb or all these people, I do think they're using certain skills that are, are involving empathic curiosity. But that's not sufficient for mediation when you have decisions to make and there's a lot of content that has to be decided and all of that. And at least in both conflict resolution and probably mediation, to get people to really resolve things, there's a lot of just structural things like a time limit. And uh, there's a lot of things you have to do if you want people to actually come up with an agreement that are different than empathy. I will say that uh, Fiona Miles has just popped up in chat. Thanks, Fiona. And pointing out that mediation comes in when conflict is entrenched, whereas empathic curiosity is needed in every situation to prevent and address conflict. So that's a nice, a nice addition. Thanks. Jody. thank you so much for a fantastic talk and introducing us to empathic curiosity and really those very practical steps. I hope you enjoyed this podcast from the 2022 National Pediatric Bioethics Conference. Please give us a rating on your podcast app and feel free to share it with your colleagues and friends. The conference sessions were recorded in the creative studios at the Royal Children's Hospital. The National Pediatrics Bioethics Conference was supported by generous funding from the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation and the Humanity Foundation. The conference will be on again this year in September. To find out more about the conference and the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, please visit us at www.rch.org.au 
forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.